a little bit something different this morning, if that's okay with you guys. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. But we've been talking, as you know, about love and submission. So, um, there was a different message that I was going to bring today, um, but I really felt through the week, um, in light of what had happened last weekend, I've, I really felt, I don't know about you guys, but I felt there was a real deposit of something powerful um, to us all as a community last week, and so it was no longer appropriate to do said message. Um, but... In the process of the week, um, God opened up the um, the book of Ruth to Chris and I. And so um, we're going to be brave and do something different. We are tag-teaming um, this message. Um, so it, it's been a challenge because in some ways it's easier just to do something on your own. Um, but the... The very pursuit of oneness is where we grow. And so I, I, we both felt that, that this was something that God was asking of us to, um, develop something in us. But, um, but we're just going to share about, um, this amazing story and what it shows us, particularly, um, in terms of marriage, but, um, as as you will see, there is a lot pertaining to other relationships. So please don't switch off if you're not in a marriage relationship because um, these things um, can be applied right across the board. Take it away, Chris. Um, you may have noticed back in uh, the end of April and the beginning of May, some people came in here and uh, they thought uh, they looked on the stage and they saw me playing up there and they looked down here and they thought they saw me sitting down in the in the chairs there, and uh, they sort of took a double take and realised that there were two of us, and which was a bit of a shock to some. Um, but uh, one person, in actual fact, went almost to congratulate me on losing some weight, <laughs> and then then suddenly realised that, hey, a minute, that wasn't that's not Chris, but I'll take the compliment anyway. <laughs> but yes, I am an identical twin. And uh, he came out from the UK, and we had a, a wonderful time with him while he was here. And uh, you know, as children, we um, we looked the same externally, and yet uh, we were different as well. But there's something about identical twins too that you know you there's things you can feel, there's things you can anticipate what the other person is thinking. And Michael and I were able to do that a lot of the times as we grew up. And uh, it's amazing the number of times we went to buy a present for somebody and we ended up buying the same thing. And that happened over and over again. But there was a oneness there. There was a oneness. And we did a lot of music together. Yes, he played violin as well. And and when you play a lot together, you get to know how the people play the music, you know, and how they feel it and so forth. And now, of course, I do that uh, with Sandra. When you play a lot together, you get to feel where people are going and so forth. So it was a wonderful time. And... And uh, I'll never forget uh, those times. But it's hard to describe, but there was a oneness there, even though we were quite different. However, there is a oneness in God that God always wants us to enter into that comes from him, that we can rest in. See, love and submission, which was a, which is a heart position, is the door that creates room for God's oneness to be forged 
in us. In John 14.8, it says, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be significant for us, sufficient for us. And Jesus replied, Have I not been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? Who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. That's a real key, that line. It's a work that the Father does in us that creates the oneness, that creates the love. And Jesus' life was a reflection of his relationship with his Father. It just flowed out of him because he lived a fully surrendered life. And Greg last week put it this way, the Father loved Jesus, the Son, and Jesus submitted to the Father's will. He also loved his father because of his of his father's love in him. It's combined. Love and submission builds us in true oneness of spirit in every environment and relationship. It's not just a marriage environment, as Sandra said. As Greg explained, God in us, in marriage, in our family, discipleship groups, the wider bodies, friends, comrades, all sorts of ways. And Jesus prayed that for that oneness in us uh, and his Father in us too in John 17. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Oneness creates something that people notice. And so this morning we would like to explore the amazing examples of love and submission between Ruth, Naomi and Boaz. The story beautifully paints a picture of us as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom and our kinsman, Redeemer. So it's uh, as we're praying this morning, I really felt to pray for encouragement. And, and it's like God said to me, you know, encouragement is to be put into courage. And... Um, we've got an example here of a woman who was incredibly courageous. And, and I want you to, to listen to the, the qualities that, that, um, that, you know, we're going to touch on a little bit. Honestly, there's so much in this book. Um, so I'm hoping it's going to be a little bit of an appetizer that will draw you in to, um, seek this for yourself. Um, but amazing qualities that can encourage us, give us courage, give us boldness to pursue and to continue on and um, not to make us think, oh, I'm hopeless and I better give up. It's totally not. This is encouragement to pursue what um, what he has got for us. So the the book of Ruth, most of you will probably know it, but just to give you a background, we've got a family of Naomi and her husband and their two sons who are in the promised land in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, the name means land of bread. That's highly significant to keep in your mind. There is a famine in the land, and this family decides that they had better leave the land of promise and 
go to Moab, which is across the Jordan, and um, the Moabites are actually the ones descended from, it's really weird, they're descended from the eldest son of Lot that he had to his daughter. So the whole nation started off with incest. Okay? So this family decide to leave in the time of famine, even though God had promised um, that he would provide in Bethlehem the land of bread, and decided to go to Moab. Now, things didn't, it says they were planning on sojourning, so a short time, but this became 10 years. And the the two sons married Moabite women, um, which was also against God's law, um, and the, this, the story picks up after both the husband and the two sons have died. So now we have Naomi, who's a widow, too old to remarry, and her two daughters-in-law. And I don't know what, it seems very odd because it says she took off. She took off back to Bethlehem because she heard, you know what she heard? She heard that God had blessed um, Bethlehem with bread. Funny that, isn't it? Um, but anyway, it's like she she took off maybe completely blinded by her grief. And it was on the journey that then she stopped and she spoke to her daughters-in-law. And she says, look, you guys need to go back to your people and um, to, to your people, to your land, because um, I want you to find rest in that land with a new husband, basically. And so she's um, she says this several times, and they're obviously incredibly close. Both of them weep and, and lift up their voices. Um, and on the second time, the one of the daughter, daughters-in-law returns, and it says it returns to her people and her gods. Now, Ruth is the other one. So she's a Moabitess. Moabite woman, I suppose. Um, and we hear something, this is the first thing we've ever heard out of her mouth, and it is phenomenal if you know this background. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. That's phenomenal. She chose to follow and never leave. There was such love in her for Naomi I don't know what motivated her fully, but there must have been this incredible love for Naomi for a start, that she knew that this woman was going to be completely bereft of any help. And she basically laid down her life in that statement and said, I'm going to stick with you. I'm not ever going to forsake you. And wherever you go, I'm going. And I am going to take your people as my people and your God as my God. So she held nothing back. And 
You know, it reminds me of another instance where this happens between Elisha and Elijah. You might know the story, the last day before um, Elisha was to be taken up. And obviously there had been prophetic word that he was going to be taken up in a whirlwind. And he goes and he visits these places. And he says to Elisha, who was kind of like um, the, the person that he'd been mentoring, the prophet that he'd been mentoring for quite some time, and he said, um, you know, stay here. Stay here, please. I'm going here, but you stay here. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. See, the same heart of pursuit and staying with. Elisha laid down his life and pursued for a great prize. In marriage and in our relationship with God, we lay down our lives and we pursue for a great prize. And that great prize is oneness. The fleshing out of the character of God. Ruth was determined And this was her persistent and consistent attitude. This was not a flash-in-the-pan promise. Both she and Elisha set their hearts on this goal. You know, the, the interesting thing is that both of them were actually tested that love That promise, that desire was tested by the very ones that they were going with. So Naomi was saying it and trying to dissuade Ruth. Now remember, Naomi was part, presumably part of a decision to, when things were rough, make a choice of her own. Remember, coming out of Bethlehem in the first place. And she is busy saying, the natural thing for you would be to find a husband. You come with me, you're not going to get that. Um, so it, it's all the more remarkable that with this that Ruth has seen, that she is still making this choice. There's a principle here. Love is not wishy-washy. It pursues and has a strong faith component that doesn't sit passively but moves forward. There's also a really interesting passage in Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. I'll read this. All This is talking about the heroes of faith. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, like Ruth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And listen to this. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to return. Interesting, isn't it? There is a testing that happens because there is something that gets built when our love is tested, that pursues in, when it's not easy, when it's facing the hardest, hardest um, possibilities. That is what strengthens the faith. 
And when we know that in all of this, God is um, wanting us to be developed and have this heart that will pursue him as his bride, we see the bigger picture of all this. Ruth, in fact, was being prepared to be a bride. When people gave up on Jesus, the disciples, um, there was a major turning away. You remember when he revealed himself as the bread of life and talked about, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, this is way too hard. This is too difficult. And many turned away. Jesus turned to his disciples at that point and said, will you, will you turn away as well? And they said, where would we go? because you have the words of eternal life. You see, this is the beautiful thing. Once we get our eyes on the prize, once we taste the life that he is, that is the thing that says, okay, this is really hard, but what would I turn back to? There is nothing of life here. You have the words of eternal life. You are life. You are love. You are the very essence and substance of being. It's a beautiful thing. She died to herself. She left all that she had known, as I said, including this natural hope of marriage and a secure future. This is the way of Jesus, of course. (laughs) His example is is there for us right in, in Philippines 2, that um, Philippians 2, 5 to 8, that he, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and becoming made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ways of God are always through death and resurrection. It's not through it just being a bed of roses. It's just not that. Remember the kingdom ways, his ways are different from our our ways and thinking is different. She didn't even know God, this woman, but she chose to entrust herself into God's care to seek refuge under his wing. It's a beautiful verse later on. I wish I could read all of Ruth to you, but please go ahead and read it at home. I'm having to pick out things, unfortunately. But 2 verse 12, this is Boaz um, talking to her, and he says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Love motivated and empowered her to step out in faith and commitment, and she didn't give way to fear. You know, love is the thing that empowers everything. What is it that drives out fear? It's perfected, completed love. That's what it says, perfect love. Perfect as in the sense of complete, mature love drives out fear. And and this is something that she was acting from, a beautiful thing. 
she became known for her love. Um, she actually became known when she got to Bethlehem with Naomi and a whole lot of things transacted. What she had done, her sacrifice, became known in that whole t- town and she was known as a virtuous woman, this Moabite. Isn't this amazing? In this whole picture, you never ever hear of her appearance. We don't know how young or old she was. We presume that she was youngish, definitely younger than Boaz. But at no point do we hear that she was beautiful. But we do hear about her character. Her character shone out like a beam of light. She was known even amongst the people in Bethlehem as a virtuous woman because of these choices that she made. Humility was a trademark quality and it showed itself in the little things of life. You know, there was, there was something in her that didn't stand on her rights. She had opportunity to do that. But there was nothing in her thinking and in her manner and in her way of being that would even think that. I'll show you. I'll prove you this. When it comes to her trying to find food, there was provision for her according to the law that um, she was able, along with other people who were poor, to glean from behind. The, the harvesters. So basically the, the, the law was saying when you harvest, make sure that you don't clean absolutely everything up. Make sure that there is stuff that is left on the ground that people who are poor can come and they can work for themselves, they can retain their dignity, but they can gather a substance for themselves, right? So this is actually legally her. She's allowed to. Even as a foreigner, she's allowed to do that. But when um, when she comes to the field that belongs to Boaz, she talks to the chief servant, and he reports this back to Boaz, and she says, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaths. See, she's not just taking possession of what's hers. She's got this humble heart to ask. When the, the story continues and this amazing relationship opens up between her and Boaz, who owns this field, he's a wealthy man, um, this develops and, and Chris is going to talk about his qualities of love and service and care and protection and all those things. It turns out that her mother-in-law, Naomi, also knows of another law that says that um, if uh, a, a woman is widowed who is of store of marriageable age, that the brother or close relative of the husband or relative is to marry her and then their children are to carry on the deceased man's name, the family name. So that again is a legal thing, and this is called the the, the close relative is called the kin, kinsman redeemer. So 
even when it came to the point where Naomi was talking to her about how to come into this um, possibility of um, asking him if he would take her as his wife, she did not just claim it. She did this in a totally submissive way. And there's this beautiful, beautiful picture in Ruth 3, 6 to 9. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. That was an act of total submission. To uncover his feet and lie down, this was the role of a servant, not of a wife. Do you see how her heart is there? Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. She wasn't a maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing. Or um, another translation is, spread the corner of your garment over your maidservant, for you are a close relative. She's stating that you are a kinsman redeemer. So both of those expressions, take me under your wing and spread the corner of your garment over me, actually meant in that day, I am a widow, take me as your wife. Powerful, powerful story this, especially if you start thinking about Jesus being our kinsman redeemer. Just throw that out there. The last thing I want to pull out about Ruth is that thankfulness and gratitude exuded from her at every turn. She is not expecting anything, and when it is given to her, she responds with this incredible heart of gratitude and my own personal experience is that thankfulness and gratitude empowers the circle of love and submission like nothing else you listen to this beautiful exchange Ruth 2 8 to 13 Boaz said to Ruth this is when they first meet listen carefully my daughter do not glean in another field Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field that that they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. The men servants this is. He's protecting her. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing on the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight? that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. Beautiful, eh? Boaz replied, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me 
and indeed have spoken kindly to the heart of your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to pass over to Chris now. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Um, oops. But men, are you awake? Are you ready to hear? Because it's two parts, isn't it? It's not just one. And sometimes when we hear, oh, yes, it's Ruth, and we can easily turn off. But in actual fact, we hold a huge key to what actually happened there, and we need to be able to grasp that in our spirit and what we play, whether you're married or whether you're not. It doesn't really matter. But Boaz was a man that lived in a time uh, when the judges ruled Israel. It was a difficult time. It was a time when people's hearts continually wandered away from God and they did what was right in their own eyes. Can you imagine living in a society like that where things are going this way and that way and people are turning to this God and that God and you know, people invading the land. There's all sorts of things happening. It was a difficult time. And yet, despite all that, Boaz kept his heart toward God and God developed his godly character and made him ready for this moment in history. You never know what God is preparing your heart for in the days ahead. We don't know what's around the corner. We see the world doing all sorts of different things, but what is God doing in you, men, that God is making the godly character being forged and shaped in you? Because one day it will need to come out. You'll need to be able to stand. And we too live in a godless society where self-preservation and my rights are the cry of the day. Often it's the systems around us that dictate the way we live, luring and tempting us to satisfy our own cravings. And God's calling us out to be a people separated. Like Daniel. I mean, he lived in a difficult time and yet he set his heart towards God. And even in the midst of the worst situations around him, he shone. Why? Because his heart was towards God. When the world got darker, the love and the light of God was just shining out of him. We don't know what's ahead, but you sure can tell that things are happening out there in the world. How will we stand? See, Boaz was a godly, was godly in all relationships. In Ruth 2, 4 it says, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Isn't that totally different from the workplaces we are today? Where people backbite behind people's backs? Where people say all sorts of different things and, and put things down? And people have a go at this person and that guy. And yet this man was blessing the people around him. It just flowed out of him. It was a natural part of who he was. It was God's love and the way that he loved and respected other people, people loved and respected him. He didn't ask for that. It just flowed and happened. I remember reading a story years and years ago of this of this um, prison in America and uh, the wife um, of the warden who looked after the prison loved the people in that side those bars and cared for them, encouraged them. And so many people um, just were just so touched by her life that when she died, you could imagine what the prison was like because somebody had treated them like a person. 
and loved them with a love that was not her own, of, of their own. What can we do with that love in our hearts? Have you ever thought about that? As men, we need to be able to, uh, to, be able to allow him to create a different atmosphere around our lives. Are we negative all the time? Are we grumbling? Are we complaining? Are we, I don't know what sort of people we might be, but the fact is that if you have a thankful and grateful heart and God's love is in you, it overflows. And people around you hear and pick that up. And you often find out the true character of a person by the way they treat others. How do we treat others? And you can't force that. Because under pressure, the true position of your heart will come out. It'll spill out whether you like it or not. But if God's in control and you've totally surrendered, and no matter what comes at you, your response will be different because God's in here. And of course, Boaz flowed out of that, uh, that love flowed out of an internal position. It was who he was. And the mouth is a reflection of his heart. At a time, uh, and it's a time for all of us men to be truly, to become what God created us to be. And that only happens when we truly surrender to him. And you heard Greg speaking about that uh, last week, in fact, quite a number of times, that we can't do those things in our own strength. We can't love our wives as we ought to. We can't love our children as we ought to. We can't love our neighbor as we ought to because our love is so limited. I don't know whether about you, but mine has been very limited. But God's love in us, if we allow him to abide in us, is sufficient, more than sufficient, to just flow out more than what we've ever realized before. And that comes when we spend time with God. Guys, you can't rely on your wife's walk with with God. You've actually got to take ownership. Because sometimes if we think, oh, well, my wife prays, my wife reads the Bible, my wife does this, does that, sometimes we can take a back seat and think, oh, well, it's all happening, it's okay up there. But actually God wants us to rise up as men to actually pray, to actually allow God's love in us so that we make a difference in our marriage. And it's not a forced thing that happens at all, but it's a love that just simply flows out. Guys, can we take responsibility for that? It's not in having to do it. It's, God, I want it. There's also, Boaz looks at protecting and providing. It says in Ruth 2, Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not glean in another field, nor go here, but stay close by my young woman. And let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So Boaz saw the vulnerability of this young widow and went the extra mile to make sure she was provided for and protected. He protected her also from the other other young men. So there was that instinct within him to actually protect and to watch over the vulnerable around around him. And this just wasn't a one-off occurrence. Because he said, look, there's other young ladies out there doing exactly the same. So what it was, was there was a natural generosity that flowed out of him because of what God had placed in him for other people. 
There was quite a lot of other young ladies there doing exactly the same thing. Whether they were widows or what, or poor, we don't know. The fact he was generous. And when God's love is in us, there is a generosity that is not our own, that comes out. And praying, and one of the ways, guys, for protecting our family is prayer, is praying for our wives, is praying for those around us, is praying and getting down on our knees before God and really encountering and knowing God and allowing God to abide in us. But praying for your family, praying for those things. Sometimes we think, oh, it just will happen. But in actual fact, we need to pray. We need to pray. And you know, sometimes, I mean, I look at Daniel. I love Daniel's character. Three times a day, he set his face towards Jerusalem and he prayed. And the favor of God was upon him because his heart was there. In a, in a, in a place where nobody or very, very little prayed at all, they prayed to other gods, but there was within him that desire to pray. And guys, I really encourage you to get down on your knees and to pray. You know, when we have a prayer meeting in the mornings, even at church, we have very few guys that, that pray. We have a lot of women praying. And they're good prayers and good hearts. But guys, what's in your heart when we pray as a family, even before the service or whatever? This place should be packed out with people praying in the morning. I just put that out there, I thought. <laughs> but this is true, isn't it? You know, when you look at the amazing revivals that took place, it wasn't because we thought, oh, we're just waiting for God to do something. There was a heart of people praying. In the book of Acts, before they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they came as one man and they prayed. And they sought God on their knees. They were told to wait before God. And boy, the place was hit by the power of God because they were praying, they were preparing. Prayer actually prepares your heart. Nothing ever happens if we just sit back and... I mean, God the sovereign, he can do anything. But we need to prepare our hearts. So I encourage you men to pray for your wives. Pray for those around you. Also, the words out of our mouths. Look at this in Ruth 2. And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since your death of your husband and how you have left your father and mother from the land of your birth and have come to the people whom you did not both know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come for refuge. And I know Sandra just read that before. But, you know, Boaz spoke kind words, life-giving words to her. In fact, it's amazing because Sandra spoke about her character. But Boaz's character was amazing as well. He was an older guy. We don't know whether maybe he was middle-aged or what, I don't know. But the fact is they, they were drawn to each other's godly character. 
There's something beautiful about that. When God is doing something, outworking in here, it's not drawn because of lust, it's not drawn because of anything else, it's drawn because of what God is doing in each of them. And there is something special. And when God is doing something in all of us, people are attracted to that because of what God is doing. He prepared, he also preserved her dignity in front of others. He looked out for her. And sadly, can I say it, sometimes Christians are the worst places for putting people down or speaking behind their back or tearing things apart. That's why we have a such divided church around the world. But the words that we speak when we have God's love in our hearts, it actually brings us together. When we walk in our own strength and out of our own position, there will be that division. But when we love our, like he loved, there is a drawing together. He was also motivated by love, not self-interest, not using people for their own advantage or good. How often have we used other people to get what we want? Let's be honest. I know we all have. Well, I know I have. You know, if we're honest over our lives, if we look back, how many times have we used others as a means to get something to this or that? Boaz knew, you see, he, he knew he couldn't marry her until the closer relative had a choice of redeeming her first. So he couldn't marry her. Even, he couldn't be her redeemer straight because they found there was another relative in front of him that actually had the right to actually redeem, uh, redeem her. So he didn't try and manipulate it. He didn't try and force God's arm. He actually laid it down. Isn't that beautiful? And someone with God's love in their hearts will actually be prepared to lay things down, even at the cost of, for their own self. He wanted God's way, as it says, and God's way is, is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 25. But there was self-control, self-control. Despite his desire for her, he was patient with God's timing and process. And you can read that in Ruth chapter 3 and 4. Jumping the gun can actually lead to disaster, causing us to miss out on the full blessing that God wants to lavish upon us. Remember Abraham. You're going to have a son. But God took a long time to work that out. So Abraham helped God along the way. And of course, Ishmael was born. And of course, that caused problems later on. It became like a, a millstone around his neck. And sometimes we can rush into things. It doesn't have to be relationships. It can be money. It can be what I want. We can crave all sorts of things. The number of families I see in debt because of I want. It breaks them. It becomes such a millstone around their neck. When sometimes God says, hold back, wait. It can affect all sorts of things. Finances, material, sex before marriage. It can be all sorts of things. And we can try and rush in and miss what God really wants to bless us. You see, he could have gone for many of those other young ladies. There were lots of other young ladies there in the field, but he didn't pursue them. His heart was set on God. And he was wealthy. 
and he could have had all that he desired, but he showed restraint and wisdom. That should be the hallmark of our character. God wants to work in us to do that. You see, we live in a society that demands uh, immediate gratification. I must have it now. Are we ruled by this? Are we trapped by it? Most things of the world promise to satisfy our cravings, which scream out for our attention. And as it says in Proverbs 7, as you know, the uh, I think the, you, um, you know, how the, she, she yells out from the streets and tries to lure people in. But have you ever read Proverbs 8? The voice of wisdom and understanding also lifts up her voice besides the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry, entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. She's at every crossroad. Isn't it amazing? The world will scream and yell and say, come and have this, come and have that. And yet also at every place along the way, God's Spirit is also saying, come this way. There's always a way out. And if we have failed, God always brings us back and redeems us. That's the gracious love of him. So I don't want to put anybody under any condemnation at all. But the fact is that God's love is so beautiful that he's continuously calling us back. And he's there every corner, every gate, every entrance place of our heart if we can hear his voice. And that comes with hearing and listening and waiting upon him. Can we distinguish between the world, the voices of the world and God calling us? And this is what happens when we totally lay everything down to him to allow him to truly abide in us. And you know, the more we focus on him, the more our eyes are open to this new reality that causes the things of this world to fail in comparison. See, when we're enticed by the world, sometimes we haven't seen him. And when we see him, and when we see, because he's our greatest prize, the things of the world actually fade. They don't grasp or hold your attention so much. You long and desire for those things, rather than for those things that will draw you away. And I encourage you to seek and to know him more, so that you see him more than being enticed. I hope that encourages you. I hope it doesn't discourage you. If at the end of our lives, particularly guys, we've just provided for our families the natural things like a nice house, a good retirement package, everything that we need, somehow we've left, and we've left a spiritual vacuum, mean we have actually missed something. Investing in our families, investing in others, investing and praying for those people. And it starts with our hearts. So often we can be, as men, so focused on providing for our families, providing this and providing that, that we let the spiritual things go. And yet God is wanting to do something very powerful in here. So that you become a source of life and encouragement to your wife and to your children and so forth. The other thing about wanting things now, I always remember Martin Steele saying that God actually 
was speaking to him and he, and he really felt that he was to go over to Europe. He felt that that was what God was calling him to do. And so he, he went to his elders. He went to the pastor there and said, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what do you think I'm about going to, to Europe, Eastern Europe and so forth? And they said to him, well, actually we don't think it's the right timing. Everything in him wanted to say, but, but, I want to go. Well, stuff you guys. I'm going to go. But, you know, God was doing something in his heart. He said, actually, no, I submit myself to you guys. I submit myself to you guys. And he came under them. And the actual fact made sure his attitude was right. Another year went past and God opened up the door a second time. This time it was far greater. If he'd gone the first time, it wouldn't have worked out for him. But the second time opened, and again he submitted it to the the leaders over him. And guess what? They said, yes, we believe the timing's right. And, of course, he went to uh, London and he worked into Eastern Europe. See, the thing is that sometimes we want things now. I believe God's showing me this. I believe God's showing me that. But can we actually surrender it? You know, with the elders or who, who is over you, can we surrender those things? And what then happens in our heart and our attitude? It all it all works together. <laughs> anyway, Boaz treated Ruth with dignity and respect. His response towards her created within her the capacity to grow and blossom into whom God had created her to be. Men, with God's life in us, what a difference he can make towards our wives, our children and others. This is a living reality God wants us to live from. And that is how we are truly transformed from the inside out. Because the world will know us by our love. Now I just want to share personally, you know, I've done everything I could to raise my boys. I've done everything I could to to love my wife and do things like that. But I found that my love was very up and down. I couldn't do it in my own strength. The more I encouraged my boys to, hey, you've got to uh, follow God. I mean, some are, some aren't. The fact is I was actually pushing them away because I was demanding it. But now I look back and I see things differently. And I see particularly the way Sandra was touched by God's love, that she loved them unconditionally. That no matter what they did or happened, no matter what they said to her or threw at her, there was a love that came out of her that wasn't her own. Yet I was trying to force things. It's got to be done this way or else. And it didn't work. But I'm discovering bit by bit that it's his love in us that actually changes them. And their relationships have changed because of the love that God has been placing in us. And it's totally different. So I want to encourage you men, particularly men, to allow God to actually work in your hearts, not to be discouraged, because we can become discouraged as men, but to actually let God take over and do it through us. It's cool. Um, I won't hold you up much longer, but I just just want to um, just testify to the fact that, you know, He knows what he's doing. He is the father of all fathers. 
And as um, Chris alluded to, it, it took me being completely broken and brought to my to the end of myself to cry out and say, Lord, show me your love. And when he when he did that and I stayed in that place, he literally revealed himself as the father of all fathers who was the source so that I could pull from the source of his love to love. I didn't have to do that. It wasn't a matter of me just should do this, should do this, should do this. It was a, a totally different method and and not having to try and change and control and make things happen the way I thought it should happen. So um, that that certainly has been my life testimony. You, you've heard that before. And and the, this is the whole thing of us sharing together. You know how encouraging it is when we see Christ in each other, and we see this humility, we see this love that that pours out. You know, and we're learning constantly of who He is and what He's called us to be. And um, you know, I just praise God for for being part of this community. It's um, it's just a tremendous um, joy to be in a place where people are pursuing him. You know, like Ruth, I will never leave you. There is a heart of pursuing that's that's particularly coming up in, in discipleship groups. And, and we've had the privilege of having, you know, people like Emilise and Willem and various people from different countries, different lands like Ruth, and they've come with this desire to pursue. And and there's this oneness in him that we have immediately. We don't even know them, but we have it in him. And this is part of um, what he is doing here, and it is, it is a very powerful, powerful thing. So we'll leave it there. We celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary last Sunday, which is cool. And, um, you know, I, I can testify not to being a fantastic wife, <laughs> but I can testify to a three-stranded cord that is not easily broken. I can testify to that. And when these ones are frayed and weak, Chris and I, his has never been frayed and never been weak. And it's been strong. And as soon as we've turned back to him, he entangles us together. The three-stranded cord is the strongest rope. A rope maker has declared that because of the fact that it is the only rope where every single strand is continually touching the other two. Powerful stuff. So be encouraged. This is not just about marriage. It's about all our relationships. But he is good and he knows what he's doing. Amen? Thanks, guys.